homage to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Well, we're well into this retreat, and there's lots going on, to say the least, in the silence. Lots going on. There's something about the ability to be in the silence and try to be as transparent and honest with ourselves that can bring forth uh, a lot of different feelings, thoughts, and emotions. And the gateway is this practice of awareness. And in particular, we're working with the practice of bringing it into the body. A psychiatrist friend of mine said to me once, after practicing the 32 parts of the body, he said, this is a really disabusive practice. And I actually didn't know what disabusive meant, and I got a little scared of my abusing him. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and I forget the exact definition, but disabusive means that it, it it is a type of experience that kind of rotates your consciousness that you look from another angle that may actually be a bit unsettling. And so we've been working with this body and perhaps there's been some unsettling experiences, maybe aversion to the practice, maybe just glorious fascination, this body. Got a note today from a person, I'll spare the name, who says, surprisingly, I found the meditation on feces to be quite grounding. Yeah, it's a little gross, but more than any other part, it really brought me into my body and made me feel human. P.S. I'm sick, so I can't wait till I get to mucus. <laughs> we got there. We got there in the last sitting. Good old mucus. Got another note from a physician about feces. It says, the study of feces is called scatology. No joke. The study of scatology helps scientists, anthropologists, physicians, farmers, and all of us, for that matter. By studying feces, we get to tell where a person may have visited, what type of diet they're on, uh, can detect ulcers, cancers, parasites, as well as bacterial infections. There's lots here that can be known through the feces. Getting in touch with this body brings up our life. 
as I've said many times, this body is the vehicle that we live inside of. So I received, we received, Richard and I, lots of questions related to the 32 parts of the body, and I've made kind of a global attempt to um, answer them, and some were combined, some I was unable to answer, but I maybe want to just begin here with just some of the questions that were left in the, the bowl. First question is why, um, just a question about the 32 parts of the body and comparing it to any of the other practices in the first foundation. Are there any advantages or disadvantages doing one over the other? And from, you know, my sense of it, it that, you know, the Buddha taught these six distinct practices of the mindfulness of the body, the breath, posture, mindfulness and activities of day-to-day -day living, the 32 parts of the body, the elements, and the mindfulness of death. And so I think it is really up to the meditator. Myself, I am interested in whatever the Buddha suggested to practice in the foundation. I consider that to be a good counsel, and I have delved very deeply in all of these practices. But of course, these practices are related to our temperament, and it may be that certain practices, such as the mindfulness of breathing, might be more of a foreground practice, and maybe the body parts uh, less so. So I think that, quite honestly, it is up to the meditators. But my sense is that it would be helpful to have exposure to all of these practices. And again, as we've mentioned a few times, each foundation is actually interrelated as we feel into the body. Naturally, pleasant, unpleasant feelings arise, states of the mind and heart arise, and of course we have to deal with the different hindrances that come up in practice and qualities of, of stabilization and so forth. So they're very interrelated. Another question was how to incorporate the 32 parts of the body as a practice. In the handout that you all have and will take home, I actually have some of us asked about the sevenfold skill in learning, and that's actually listed in the first practice and first paragraph. It says to practice the 32 parts of the body. One must begin to recite the parts of the body forward and backwards, verbally and mentally, and then one must learn or know the color, the shape, the location, the direction, the delimitation of each part. And so that is there for you to work with. And as I mentioned earlier, I will put my email address up and I will make available to anyone that's interested this group of definitions that I've compiled through medical dictionaries and also uh, consulting some physician friends. I actually want to thank a few of the physicians in the audience that actually uh, gave me more information. I learned some more about the diaphragm and feces today as well, and I want to thank them. And this is an ongoing definition list. So as far as incorporating as practice, my suggestion would be 
if you could take out 30 minutes at the minimum and maybe spend a little bit of time at first practicing the awareness of breathing just as a way to help stabilize the mind and uh, to gain some concentration and then maybe recite the five parts that you're going to be working on and then begin to go into each part sensing, feeling There was actually a question later about the use of visualization and breath. And so what I will say is that if a visualization or an image arises that helps to point you into sensing, into that experience of the body, by all means, use that image if it arises. Use the breath if it's there, if that helps you to get in touch with that body part. So I'm not saying you should not visualize and breathe with the practice. So, I, but I, but I want to emphasize that in doing this practice, it's best to, to sense and feel into this part. And so in that half hour sequence, perhaps a little bit of time, five minutes with the breath. Actually, even before the five minutes with the breath, I always recommend as we begin to practice to take a moment to welcome ourselves. It's wonderful that we're going to take this time to sit and meditate. And check in for a few moments how you're doing physically and mentally and emotionally, and then perhaps coming to the breath to stabilize awareness, and then going through each of the parts, and then ending with some form of metta, loving-kindness, some understanding of these parts are part of the body and that this body, of course, is the vehicle that I've mentioned many times that we live inside of. And that we begin to penetrate into understanding the body as it really is. Now, as far as doing this as a practice for a duration of time, what I would suggest is you may want to even attempt to do it in a long-standing way, doing the eight-month practice, if you like. And so the first week, it's the first five parts forward, as I mentioned earlier in the day, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, and the second week, doing it in reverse. And then the third week, forward in reverse, and then venturing on to flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. So that takes up about six weeks. And then in the seventh week, coming back to head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, for a week forward, a week backwards, a week forward and backwards. So it begins to zigzag in all 33 weeks, eight months, working with this practice. There was questions about, well, how do I feel the fluid? And I know that some of these parts are pretty obscure. How can I feel my bile? And so on one hand, this practice is kind of like Braille. We're sensing and feeling into the body. And the truth is, unless, um, and I don't think we would be functioning without a liver in our body, that there will be bile in there. That's the reality. And so we're 
Just sensing and acknowledging the reality of bile, its function, what it looks like, and so forth. And of course, some of these fluids travel through different plumbing parts, like the urethra with urine and stored in the bladder, and the feces stored in the large colon, and so forth. The main point is to sense and feel into the body, just like I mentioned on the first evening about that Gary Larson cartoon when, when the cow's discovering, hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. It's like, again, it's that spirit of like, yes, there is bile in there. Every time I move my joints, there's synovia fluid that's excreting. And so it's that sensing and feeling into the body, but most particularly as we work with this, what it's evoking. Let us not forget that important aspect. A friend of mine, good friend of mine, she's dying of cancer right now. And I want to read you a note that she wrote to her friends. It's written last Tuesday. She says, Greetings, precious beings. So as the days of winter continue to nourish the earth with rain from the skies, I've begun to contemplate the situation that I find myself in. There is this undercurrent of experience that I'm just waiting around to die. Strange thing when you're told that your time is limited and that many future projections just disappear from my consciousness. So now I'm left with this question of being fully awake in each passing day, hour, and minute. And old habits are really hard to change. So often I find myself just wasting time. Granted, I have a lot more time now to meditate and be still. But my mind keeps questioning, just what could I be doing with this time left in me? I wonder if this is just the patterns of behavior that are familiar to me, keeping busy, doing all of the good works, all of the messages that I have followed in the past. Now, though, I am too tired to do much. And so the dilemma is allowing myself to let go of the old messages and discover new ways to enrich my day-to-day -day life. This, my friends, is my challenge, and I never realized how stubborn I am about who I think I am. So this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. Hmm. Dear friend Gail, stepping into this moment. And so we can get all caught up on all the little technical things about the body parts practice, but it's about this. It's about our lives. And we use this body practice to get into our lives. And you know, from hearing in the interviews and talking with many of us, I know there's lots going on inside us, lots of feelings. So 
So I'm going to just address uh, a few more questions that were asked, and then I want to spend the rest of this time tonight talking about these feelings. What do we do with these feelings that are evoked when we practice? says, some parts, they have no sensations. Example, like head hair. What do I do? And so again, with this practice, we're sensing into the top of the head. There is head hair up there, protruding from the skin. This is what it is to be a human being. There's head hair. Again, it's that sense of just sensing and feeling into the head, into head here. We may not feel the hair itself, but we certainly have looked in the mirror many times in our lives and been happy and sad and looked and judged and did a lot of things. What does head here provoking you? Another question asked, uh, how would you suggest asking the body to let go of fat? <laughs> <laughs> or strengthen, produce more muscle mass? I don't know. <laughs> but I think the deeper question is, you know, it's maybe not difficult for us to sit with our fat. You know, fat's got a kind of a bum wrap. But you know, when we take a look at fat, it's insulation. It's energy, it's storage. Oftentimes in our modern culture, we don't need that much storage, perhaps if we're not going to have a famine. But it is storage. And for all of you that are slender, having seen many, many dead bodies in anatomy labs, even slender people have fat in their bodies. Probably the only place where you'll find literally no fat is in an infant. Fat is an important aspect of the body, but yet it can bring up a lot of judgment, a lot of shame, a lot of sense of feeling unworthy, that there's something wrong, that you're flawed. These are the important aspects when we're working with the practice, when these types of feelings of inner deficiency and I'm not enough, this is where we bring the practice. There's a reflection about that our society and culture, and of course there's a lot of connotations with our body parts, particularly the ones that we see, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. And it's natural for us to, of course, have this attraction to one another and our own sexual orientations, and there's just questions like, what, what's natural for us? And it is a good question, but the, we can all say there is a very strong pull to continue going. The forces of creation are very strong in every one of us. This is powerful energies. And of course, as Richard was talking about in the precepts, how that energy can also cause a lot of harm and a lot of damage. 
This is a very difficult question, and it's probably one of the questions that I, you know, there is really no answer. But the sense of attraction, we find this in nature, we find this in human beings, all supporting the becoming. But what the Buddha caught was that when there's becoming, or when there's birth, there's aging, illness, and death. We call this the world of samsara. And the practices of the mindfulness of death are very important. Like, why do we practice? And no doubt, um, you know, we might be here for some self-help. But on the deeper level, this human condition and is beckoning us to, we all know that one day we will die. The death rate is one per person. We cannot escape from dying. <laughs> it's exactly one per person. It's been like that forever. We may extend our lifespan. We may learn some good self-help skills. We may have good interpersonal communication. We may exercise, eat right, meditate. But we will die one day, and tomorrow we'll begin to be working with these practices of the mindfulness of death. And I hold that death is a big trump card. Suzuki Roshi once said, if you didn't die, you'd have a really big problem. You think about it, okay. So I'm into gratification. So first 5,000 years, I get all the pizza I want, I have all the sex I want, and I have all this and that, and, you know. Then like 10,000 years go by, and you know, 50,000 years go by, and it's like, huh? It's getting kind of old. <laughs> Death is a powerful trump card. It reveals to us the preciousness of life and its fragility. And I know that I shared with you the story of Siddhartha Gautama and how he became the Buddha. And I just love that story. I love that story. That story is me. When I was a little boy, four years old, I had this realization that I was going to die and that that could happen to, any, to, to myself or to anyone at any moment. And it rocked my soul, if you will. And I remember asking my mother and father, I was riding in the back seat of their car, and I, and I just told them what I had discovered, that, that, that we can die at any moment. And they looked, they turned around, and they said to me very lovingly, don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, 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 long time. And, you know, I don't feel mad at them. I knew that they were trying to protect me, and they were trying to be kind. But I also knew at four years old they were not telling me the truth. And as I mentioned to you the other night, I had later experiences in childhood of three major deaths in my life that further compounded this. And so this story of Siddhartha discovering these messengers of that there is aging and illness and death and that no one can escape from it, it was that type of shaking of his heart and being that catapulted him into some sort of, let me understand this life. This is so important. At least to me it is, to make sense of this life. And when Siddhartha Gautama saw this last sign of someone that was dedicating their lives towards like meditation, that there was a pathway towards inner knowledge, he went for it. You've gone for it. You're here. 
and how courageous coming and in, dropping into this body retreat and body parts and elements and mindfulness of death. I don't know if I signed up for this. Whether we signed up, you know, sometimes I used to be upset with my mother and father. If they just didn't have sex, then I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have to deal with this. <laughs> but I got to deal with it because I'm here. And also, though, uh, you know, that's when I'm feeling insecure and angry and why do I have to deal with my life and why do I have to die? But when we bow, you see sometimes it's bowing. It's a five-point prostration. Head, two arms, two legs. And it represents five very important aspects. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, we've taken refuge in that. But also the, the fourth refuge is taking refuge or gratitude into your mother and father because without them we would not be here. We would not be able to practice without our mother and father. Immense gratitude to our mother and father. And the last, the fifth point, is the gratitude and homage to our benefactors, our teachers, those that have brought us into the path of the heart. So when we bow, it's not necessarily to the statue, but we're bowing to the Buddha, the principle of awakening, the Dharma, the teachings, the Sangha, those that are practicing the teachings, mother and father, and our teachers, our benefactors. There was a question about, um, or a comment that, you know, I can see that there's no self in feces and in nail clippings, but what about my brain? And you look at it, the brain is actually a three-pound piece of tofu, as we were mentioning earlier, or tofu-like substance. It's very interesting that in neuroscience, neuroscientists are interested in trying to find where is this I? Where is the self? And they are perplexed. They cannot find one. It's a very interesting book, The Buddha's Brain, by Rick Hansen and Richard Mendes, and talk about um, these patterns of neural information that's amalgamated into some structure that one says, I, me, and my. Very difficult to find the I from a neuroscience point of view. Maybe rather than whether there's an I or no I, it's like when we begin to see that we're going to be born and we're going to live and we're going to die, it's ay ay ay. What am I going to do? And of course, in the Dharma says, no I, no problem. No I, no problem. So let's get to the heart. A person wrote to me today, there appears to be much grief and pain stored in the body. Do you just let it be, even if it's deep? What do you do? Another person asked that their partner is a skeptic, feels so alone. What do I do? We've been feeling emotions here, and this body is provoking. And if it's not the body, if you're on a regular Vipassana retreat, it's, it's, it's still being provoked. The quality of just being silent, being with ourselves, not many distractions, things begin to arise. My friends and I, when we lived in the monastery, we would very affectionately call it, it felt like it was living in a shit accelerator. And in, in the sense that things are just arising. So it looks nice on the outside. You know, it's peaceful, pastoral, central Massachusetts. There's snow, there might be some deer. 
very nice. But inside, it's a cooker. And we begin to cook. Someone's taking too long using that thing to get the stuff off the, the dishes. We get Look the... We get, we get the Vipassana Vendetta. Or then we get the Vipassana Romance. We're looking at someone in front of us. We've never even talked to them, and we're already married. And you know, There's all this stuff, projections and different things that are, arise as we sit with our bodies. As I mentioned earlier, that powerful poem by Martha Elliott, your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse all of its learnings and thoughts and experiences taking shape, being revealed. As we sit here, we can at times let the paranoia set in, and it can get very scary. How many of us have ever felt like this? This is called We Who Are Your Closest Friends. And we feel that the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is in on it, plus your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we've pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. It goes on and on. We can, you know, it's funny, but it's not. We, we, we laugh because we know that space inside us that when we feel scared or at times we feel broken or we feel like we are wrong and we don't know what to do. This is part of our condition at times. And then we think, of course, I got to be the super meditator made of the right stuff. So here's to all of you. <laughs> if you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, you are made of the right meditative stuff. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. <laughs> so much for the right meditative stuff. What happened to compassion? Oh, what happens to your consciousness when it softens into compassion. There is a perennial wisdom, not only found in the Dharma, but we could say the universal Dharma, a universal perennial wisdom that speaks about this turning into what's here. Now, I know it might feel very paradoxical, turning into what's here. I'm talking about turning into our pain, our emotional pain, our physical pain. Tonight I'm speaking more about the emotional pain. When I was 16, living, growing up outside of Boston, I got my license and of course we have winters and snow and 
inevitably I'd be getting caught in skids in the snow and my impulse was always to turn away from the skid because it was scary. I remember telling my dad one day about this and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And that scared the heck out of me hearing that. I didn't believe him. I was 16. So I tried to keep on turning away and as much as I turned away, I could never straighten out until one day I realized the futility and decided what the heck, give it a go. And I couldn't believe it. It was a revelation. As I turned my wheels into the skid, my car began to straighten out. And it planted a very powerful seed in me. I'm very grateful for my dad for that teaching. And the seed is the learning to trust to turn into the fear, turning into the pain. And there's, uh, as I was mentioning, uh, quite a tradition. We know of Rumi and the, his famous poem, The Guest House, where he speaks about you know, this being human is a guest house in every moment that can be a new arrival and to welcome and entertain them all. That's radical. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door and invite them in. He even goes on to say, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Like, that's radical notion turning into our pain, turning into our fears. Hafiz, he says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give all its beauty to the world? It felt the encouragement of the light against its being. Otherwise, we will all remain too frightened. Otherwise, we'll all remain too frightened. Franz Kafka says, you've got suffering and you have your choice in whether you want to deal with it or not. And if you don't deal with it, you've got two sufferings. It's very practical. St. Isaac of Nineveh, a Christian mystic that lived in 9th century Iraq, he says, be at peace with your own soul and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you, and you'll see the things that are in heaven. There's one single entry. This ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within you. So dive. Dive into yourself. Dive into yourself. And there, there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. Very beautiful. Diving into yourself. There you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. Meditation is like that. We're diving into ourselves, and things are coming up. Jennifer Wellwood writes, this is so beautiful and very wise, called Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition that I flee from. It pursues me while each condition 
I welcome begins to transform me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome begins to transform me. Now I know for many of us it's very scary to turn into the skid. Yet perhaps our heart is just waiting for us right there. So here's a poem for your comfort. It's called When the Cure Begins, written by another Christian mystic in the Middle Ages in some wonderful Middle Age descriptive language here. His name is Francis Fenelon. He says, as the light of awareness increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. And we're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from us the depths of our heart, a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. And why, but while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we can be filled with horror. But bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind for your comfort. We perceive the malady when the cure begins. Hurricane Carter, prize fighter, falsely accused for murder, spent a lot of time in jail until he's finally released. He says, the most memorable bout I ever had in my life was with myself. I had to fight all the bullshit, all of the arrogance, all of those things, and when I was in solitary confinement, I was in a state of hatred. I hated everybody. I hated the judge. I hated the criminal who said I was at the scene of the crime. I had to come to terms with that. And finally, I had to give it up. And that took a long time, but I knew that I had to be free. And that was my mission, to be free, to stay above the prison system, which is one of the lowest levels of human existence. Spirituality to me is a conscious mind, a mindful mind. I've come to find out that spirituality means a mindfulness mind, a conscious mind, someone who is awake rather than asleep. Sleeping people kill one another. Sleeping people make war on one another. Sleeping people do all kinds of terrible things to one another. I want to be awake. Hurricane Carter. So our practice is our willingness to be open to seeing things from another perspective. We can get pretty, you know, rigid in our sitting cushion here. This is how it is. Maybe you want to switch cushions, see from another angle. Maybe it's not exactly how it is. 
being open to different perspectives is a very important part of our practice, beginner's mind. And I know it may feel very counterintuitive to turn into our pains, and I don't want to also appear to be too macho. We need to acclimate ourselves, just like you put your foot in the cold water, it's a very hot day, and you dip in and dip out, and gradually there's acclimation. But the gesture that I want to offer is that perhaps it's the turning in just a little bit, beginning to open our hearts, and we may discover something very important. Particularly all of the material that is coming up inside all of us in this practice. And I say all of us. Richard and I are not separate. We got our stuff just like we, well, I don't know, maybe I should speak for myself here. But uh, <laughs> he's fully enlightened. Um, we're learning to lighten up and to begin to discover that our causes of our grasping and our aversion is creating incredible amounts of suffering and pain. It's that old story about catching the monkey in India, and there's a big vase and a thin neck, and the monkey puts his hand in the vase to get a banana that's been planted in there, and then it can't get out. And the hunter catches the monkey, and freedom is right here. And that's so easy. So I want to offer this possibility of seeing things differently. And mindfulness is that piece. Viktor Frankl, psychiatrist, concentration camp survivor, he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom. Mindfulness is that space to begin to become mindful, aware of what's present here beginning to acknowledge what has been unacknowledged, beginning to, at times, allow ourselves to feel what we've pushed away from feeling. Whatever we flee from, don't you notice it pursues you just when you're not looking? A little knock on your door, you, I'm here again. And it's like that little twinge, like, oh, not you, and push it away, and that pushing it away feeds it to come back again. So the guest house of Rumi, come on in. This old Tibetan teaching story, when the ghost came and occupied a monk's cave, the harder the monk tried to get rid of the ghost, the busier the ghost got. Finally, when the monk said, you can stay, they all left. There wasn't anything to keep them there anymore. So looking at our perceptions of things, so I'll read you the cookie thief. A woman was waiting at an airport one night. With several long hours before her flight, she hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a nice place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but she happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. <laughs> and with each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. And he offered her half as he ate the other. 
And she snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, and then sawed her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> Our perceptions of things. So I want to invite you to look at our perceptions of how we see things with the material, our emotions that are arising. Can we begin to meet it with awareness? I'm going to end in just a minute, but I just want to say that in the Mori culture in Polynesia, there's a mythical story of a village that had no physicians. And when an anthropologist came to check out, there's no physicians, there's no shamans, there's no indigenous medicine. What do you do when a person gets sick? And the villagers said, it's easy. What we do is we get the sick person, we put them in the middle of a circle, and the villagers sit around. And then one of the elders simply asked the question, what has been left unsaid? And they wait. Sometimes it's a short time, sometimes it's a long time, till everything that has been unsaid is said. And it is said that the cure rate is 98%. This is a mythological story, but there's a lot of truth to the power of acknowledging what has not been acknowledged inside us. Beginning to meet our hearts with compassion and wisdom. So I think I'll just end with a very beautiful poem by Mary Oliver. And those of you that know Mary Oliver, she's got so many wonderful poems. And one of her poems earlier in her life was about the summer day, which we might read tomorrow. And the punchline of that poem is after she realizes that everyone, if everything dies at last, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's a very haunting question for us to consider everything dies at last. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? In this poem, this is an excerpt from her poem called Sweet Grass, I feel kind of answers that question. This is now many years later. This is a very recent poem that she published, I believe, just last year. So will the hungry ox stand in the field and not eat of the sweet grass? Will the owl bite off its own wings? Will the lark forget to lift its body in the air, or forget to sing? Will the rivers run upstream? Behold, I say, behold, the reliability and the finery and the teachings of this gritty earth gift. Eat bread and understand comfort. Drink water and understand delight. Visit the garden where the scarlet trumpets are opening their bodies for the hummingbirds who are drinking the sweetness, who are thrillingly gluttonous. 
but one thing leads to another. And soon you'll notice how stones shine underfoot and eventually the tides will be the only calendar you believe in. And someone's face, whom you love, will be as a star, both intimate and ultimate. And you will be both heart-shaken and respectful, and you will hear the ear itself like a beloved whisper. Oh, let me, for a while longer, enter the two beautiful bodies of your lungs. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind, I had to, since somebody had to. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind, I had to, since somebody had to. And that was many years ago. And since then, I've gone out of my confinements, though with difficulty. And I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, and I cast them out. And I put them on the mush pile, and they will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I, I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older and cherishing what I have learned. I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself, then forget it, and then love the world. So let's just sit for another minute as we listen to the gong being present. You will take um, some walking practice and meet back for another sitting. 